chapter 8. By the way, I do want to say thank you. you have, several of you have, have uh, recommended different books as I'm transitioning. We just finished the book of Ruth, and so uh, uh, praying, deciding another direction to go. And I really appreciate the text or, and, or people just coming up and recommending different, different books that they would like to see gone through. That's exciting to see. It means you want to see, you know, this book. There's interest there. It's not just a whatever, and, and I appreciate that. So I'm praying about that and, and deciding which direction to go. have not settled yet. And you know, since, since I've been here about five, six years now, we've already covered ten books of the Bible that we have covered. Uh, Acts is the 11th book that we're in right now. So we went through several of them. And, uh, but Acts chapter 8 here this morning, <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at the first eight verses of chapter 8. <clears throat> All right, verse number 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, the death of Stephen, what we looked at here actually just on Wednesday night. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, <clears throat> which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and they uh, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask your blessing upon the service this morning. I pray for your mercy and your grace. Lord, I pray that your word, uh, Lord, would, would help us and encourage us and draw us closer to you. Lord, you, you know the needs that are here in every single person's heart. And Lord, I pray that you would bless and that you would use this to be a help to do the, the reproving, the rebuking, the exhorting that needs to take place. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know Christ as their Savior, Lord, I certainly pray for that, that drawing and that conviction that even, even this morning they would repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may you be glorified and honored in all that's said and done here this morning. Please guide and direct. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, as we concluded chapter 7, we had the death of Stephen, and we, we, those who were here Wednesday night, we went over when he was martyred, and really how brutal it was, and Stephen's reaction, and all that had taken place, and after he had just accused them of murder, of murdering Christ, accused them of the one of, of, of those who have actually blasphemed, he had his defense of the gospel, and, and, and they were in such a rage Stephen looks up steadfast into, in, into the sky, and the Lord just takes away the horror of the moment. He allows him to see in the spiritual, if you will. He opens his eyes, he can see the glory of God, it says, in Christ at the right hand of the Father, standing really to greet him. And that moment just took away the horror of everything right there. I mean, that's just, just amazing. And, of course, the mob runs upon him, and they stone him right here. We have the very first martyr of the Christian faith. And that would launch what takes place here in chapter 8, a scattering. Now, persecution did not necessarily begin right here, but as far as a great persecution, a major persecution, this is the very first one. I mean, we see persecution taking place going back to chapter 4. 
uh, when we have uh, Peter and James are being put in prison. Chapter 5, we have the, the apostles beaten and put in prison. But this persecution is different. This is the first of what would, uh, what would uh, 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 become the very first great persecution on Christians. There's been several in church history. This certainly isn't the only one. There's been many of them that would take place. After this one, we'd have the rise of Roman persecution, and it would continue and continue and continue throughout all of history. Our nation really has been the exception to this. For the last few hundred years, we, have really, we are such an incredibly blessed nation. When you look at world history and the history of Christianity, to have the privilege of being in the United States of America has been incredible. We have lived in a time frame and in, and in one of the very few places the world has ever known that for the most part has been free of any serious persecution if you're a Christian. <clears throat> this nation more than any other in history was based on freedom of religion from a, a Christian Bible perspective. There, was, there, there really has no been any great government persecution. There has always been a, 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 a strong measure of religious freedom. This nation ended up becoming the base of missionaries going out into the entire world as a result. However, at the end of the 19th century, the start of the 20th century, a foundation was being put in place to change that. We had liberal theology coming from Europe, and little did, little did they recognize at the time, well, some men did when you read about it. There were some key pastors and men at the time that did recognize the dangers that was happening. Of a, of a, in the 19th century, really going back to the 18th century, there was a strong liberal theology movement that was taking place in Europe. It was now creeping into the United States of America at the beginning of the 20th century. On top of that taking place, you had, from the 19th century, taking grip in the 20th century, the big lie, evolution. Evolution was now in place. The teaching of, of this nonsense that basically it was undercutting the idea of a creator, which is absurd. Literally, the idea of evolution is absurd. Look around you at the order, at the beauty. There's a creator. This just didn't happen, boom, because of an explosion. But nonetheless, the lie was in place. It was now in schools, and now we have generations up and coming that that's what they would believe is the start of humanity. Now, at first, it was always taught as a theory. When I was in school in the 80s in public school, it was still the theory of evolution. That's changed now. So we had different things taking place that were establishing a foundation for what would change in the United States of America. We add to it what took place after World War II, and that was prosperity. Our nation became a very prosperous economic powerhouse. Prior to that, we were a strong nation, but we did not have the economic prosperity that we had. Uh, and there, was, there wasn't all, all of the dependence upon government either. People had to work hard. They had enough just to make a living and get by. They still had to depend upon God. But things changed when economic prosperity hit. 
And as, the, as we see, really even in the nation of Israel, I think of the, it was in Amos chapter 6 coming to mind right now, uh, woe to those that be at ease in Zion. There can be a danger with prosperity. It can make you soft. And we saw that taking place. We have now had in our country more than one generation that all they have known is nothing but prosperity. They've never experienced what it's like growing up with genuine and true hardship. That's why many of the immigrants coming in from different places, you know, they know what genuine hardship and persecution is about. Ask those coming in from Somalia. From the Middle East. But we have generations now, more than one that have come up, that's all they've known. So they almost have to create hardships because they have nothing to compare it to. We're seeing that take place now. Almost these made-up hardships. They're really nothing but minor when you compare to what really what's going on in other parts of the world. On top of this, in the last 30 to 40 years, our nation has turned very secular, allowing humanism to be guiding the guiding thought, and certainly not the Bible. As a result, there is a hatred for Bible morality. This has set the stage now for persecution to come. We're just beginning to see it. So, for the Christian, understand this. Persecution should be expected. It's not for us as Americans because we've never known it. But we've been the exception to the rule. Understand that. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 15. If I'm not wrong, I'll find it. It was when he was speaking to, it was right before, it was the last days before his crucifixion, and he was talking to his disciples and letting them know what would come. This is also, of course, words for us. Yes, John 15, verse 18. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember, the word that I have said unto you. Remember this. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. And so he lets us know, not just there, in other places as well, throughout the Bible, persecution will come. There's something wrong if you're in a humanistic culture that is secular in nation, it will oppose God, and they love you. I mean, we have a movement. That's, that's, that's genuinely, I believe, one of the reasons we're seeing churches struggle and becoming so much like the world. They don't know how to adapt in a changing nation. It's almost like, listen, we like to be loved. We do. I don't care who you are. You like to be loved. It's almost as if as the, as the culture is changing, churches are trying to adapt so they can still be loved by the world. Look, we're not that much different. We can entertain you. The church is not about entertainment. It's not. <clears throat> Make no mistake, the world hates God and always has. The Christian... I remember I was watching an interview with uh, one of the pastors in the nation. What was it on Fox News or CNN? I don't know what it was. And it was sort of asked that out of left field because, well, I mean, everybody's recognizing the change in it. It was asked about persecution. And it was, a, it was an odd question just thrown out there. I can't remember the wording of it. It was something, well, I think he said something like, when I say the word persecution to you, what do you think? And, and I liked his answer. He said, the Christians should expect it. That's Bible. Is it not? It is. 
So we're going to break down this text as we look at this very first great persecution beginning against Christians here in Acts chapter 8. I've entitled this Scattered, because they're going to be scattered abroad. We're going to look at three areas, the persecution, the scattering, and the rejoicing. So let's look at the first three verses here of Acts chapter 8. The persecution begins. I've got to get back there myself. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution, and it's not kidding, it's a great persecution, against the church, which was at Jerusalem. That's, that's the only church in existence at this time, is the church at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men, this, this really is an important verse, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As far as Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. So let's look at first here, the persecution. As a result of the death of Stephen, where it says, at that time. This is a direct result of what just took place with Stephen, with the religious leadership approving of, the mob there, and them stoning him. The very first Christian martyr, a great persecution now rises up against Christians. The leadership was so angry, so furious, as we saw in the death of Stephen... They decided to try and extinguish the entire movement now. They wanted it over with. This was to end it once for all. They're going to end this thing. That was their goal right now. They were emboldened. They were furious. They're in a rage. And now their rage has now become government policy. They're going after them. That's what they're going to do. They've had enough. We're going to end it. And guess who's put in charge? A man named Saul. A man named Saul. I I wonder, I'm going to try and paint so you can appreciate the amazing grace of God, a picture of who Saul was before conversion. I personally wonder if he didn't volunteer, let me have it. I'll put the movement out. The Bible doesn't say that. We know he's in charge of it. But I personally wonder if he wasn't saying... Let me have it. The book of Acts and the epistles give us sufficient information to get an idea of what Paul's early life was like. I don't have time to go through the verses of him here this morning. I have them all listed here. But I'm just going to list you things we know about Saul that the Bible teaches us. We know uh, um, that he was born in Tarsus in Sicily. That's Acts chapter 22. Therefore, he's a Hellenistic Jew. He is the Hebrew of the Hebrews. It says that in two different places in the New Testament. He was the son of a Pharisee, Acts 23. He was a Roman citizen. He was educated in Jerusalem at one of the best schools for theology. He became a devoted Pharisee. Measured by the law, the Judaism of his day, rather the pseudo-Judaism, but the Judaism of his day, his life was blameless. He was one of the most popular and passionate young Pharisees in Jerusalem. Well on his way to becoming one of the leaders of the nation. And everyone knew it. When we were in Acts 7, we saw as a young man, as this passionate, zealous Pharisee, he already has a measure of authority. And that's impressive considering he was a Hellenistic Jew. 
Remember, they laid this coat down at his feet when they stoned Stephen. It wasn't because they needed a coat holder. Watch our coat, somebody might steal them. That's not what's going on here. It represented authority. Let me give you an example. If you go back into the book of Acts, I believe chapter, was it four or five, when they're given an offering, what did they do with it? They laid it at the feet of the apostles. That's because they were an authority. All right? It was a symbolic gesture. So they knew there. Keep in mind, who else is present at a stoning, yet they laid the garments at Saul's feet? You had the, you had the Sanhedrin present. They're there. Saul's zeal for the law in his understanding at the time was, was perhaps his, his passion for it was demonstrated the greatest in how strong he persecuted Christians. Remember, Paul said of himself, I was the chiefest of sinners. He wasn't just being humble. He knew who he was before conversion. I can just imagine all the different faces that haunted him after he converted to Christ. And what is interesting is what the Lord allows Saul, who had become Paul, to go through after his conversion. Everything you see taking place to Stephen, Paul goes through over and over and over and over. Time he goes in and disputes in the synagogue, what's he accused of? Blasphemy. He is beaten. He is mocked. He is ridiculed. He is rejected of his Jewish brethren. He is stoned by an angry mob, left for dead. Of course, God would rise them up at that time. And he would eventually be martyred for the faith. And that became his life the moment he converted. But really, when you put this in perspective of who he was, you'll begin to understand the incredible grace and significance of this man's conversion in the next chapter in the book of Acts. Now, before I get too much into that, I want to bring up verse 2. The apostles that stayed, the scattering started to take place. I'll touch more on that in the second point. Verse 2 says this about the death of Stephen. It's almost out of place here, if you will. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. This is interesting here, why the Bible points this up. There's a debate here as who did the burial. I think it's fairly obvious. Some say it was Christians. Others say that it is not Christians, that it was simply devout Jews. And I would agree with that perspective, because it doesn't say they were Christians. It doesn't say they were believers who came and got him. And when that phrase is used, it's used, for instance, of Simeon, it's used of, of, was it two other times? It was always used not of a believer in Christ, but of a devout Jewish man. And so it says here that, that when Stephen was stoned, you still had these devout men that carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. When they made great lamentation, they broke the law. The Mishnah, when it comes to an executed person being buried, says this. When an executed person is buried, he must be buried. No public weeping is allowed. No public weeping is allowed at all. So you had these devout men that carried Stephen. They realized what just took place. The mob mentality took over. We haven't seen that in the past couple of years, have we? 
The mob mentality took over, but there were those present who disagreed with it. They were willing even to break the law in that case. When they brought Stephen out, they weren't supposed to make any lamentation. The Bible says they made great lamentation over his death. What they recognized was the direction we're going right now. I mean, you think about those. You think, and by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, the church has exploded probably in the neighborhood of 20,000 converts in Jerusalem. Think of that. So, think of how many family members have somebody who converted. Think of those when they talk with them, when they listen to the passion in their eyes and say, no, listen, Christ, that man was and is the Messiah. Knowing their family member believed it. Knowing how their life changed. They see the persecution rising. There's many that know this is not the direction we need to go. So not all in Jerusalem agreed with it. And they defied this tradition of not uh, having sorrow and weeping at the death of somebody who was executed. Verse 3, it goes back to Saul and it says this. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. So Saul goes on this rage. The word havoc here is interesting. It's applied to wild beasts, to lions, to wolves. It denotes devastation. It, denotes, it has the meaning to tear to pieces, to rip apart. Some word study books said of this word, it means it's brutal, sadistic kind of cruelty. A strong word. It's describing what Paul was doing. This guy has his team of his Gestapo men. He's literally going house to house. Breaking in. Taking what he wants. Throwing in prison who he wants. Anybody who converted. By the way, we know from not only here with Stephen, of course, but other places where Paul talks about it, including killing some. It was brutal. Acts 22 talks about how he killed, put in prison, men and women. He had no mercy on the weaker sex. It didn't matter to him. Rage is controlling. You want to know what's going on? In this? Remember, remember how the Lord addressed him in Acts chapter 9. The words that the Lord said unto him about, is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? This is a man that's under tremendous conviction. And he's going the opposite direction with it right now. I mean, you could just think of, 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 the, of the scene in Jerusalem. Think of what's happening. Those who had converted in their houses right now wondering when Paul and his men are going to show up. House to house, arresting people, beating them, dragging them off, throwing them in prison, taking their property. It was brutal. So you have multitudes that are packing up, getting out. They have to leave. They're hoping to get out before Saul shows up with his Gestapo crew. Things change just like that. Literally, think about this. There's different examples of this in, 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 in world history as well. One event set it off because the foundation was in place. Paul wanted to completely crush the Christian movement. He wanted it gone. 
He thought this was the way to do it. I think we need to have the right view of who Paul was before his conversion, again, to see how amazing God's grace is. There's a tremendous truth here that we learn, and we could see it proven out again with events like what happened on, uh, on 9-11 of 2001. Religion that is not based in truth apart from God's Spirit can make you very wicked, and you don't even see it. You believe you're righteous. There's danger in any religion that is apart from truth and Almighty God. Saul's religion was like that of Cain. Cain, who didn't want to kill a lamb, but was okay killing his brother. Saul was a killer. He was brutal. He was separating families. He was fighting directly against God's work. But then we get to chapter 9. He converts. Just like that. Boy, do you see a changed man. When you understand who he was before, you begin to understand his wording where he does say uh, how thankful he is of God's tremendous mercy and grace. The chiefest of sinners. Again, I, as I, and I never had that belief prior to coming into this section of the book of Acts. I believe that's part of his motivation when he's trying to help the poor saints at the church at Jerusalem. He knows some of his own actions are accountable for their poverty. Again, he can see their faces. He can hear them begging as he's dragging them out of houses. But he becomes a changed man. Remember, when he's converted, you begin to understand why after he gets converted, they had to change the guy's name. Christians were not about to believe this guy converted. And now we come into the scattering. We see that, it mentions it in verse 1, all scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea uh, Judea and Samaria. Verse 4, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of, out of many that were possessed with them. And many, taking with palsies and, and, and that were lame, were healed. So now there's a scattering that takes place. The persecution that was initiated here has the complete opposite effect of what they desired. It explodes Christianity throughout the known world. It takes over. It's going to promote the very thing that Saul and the Jews are trying to destroy. It's going to promote it to a much greater level. I think of the story of of a missionary going back to the 1950s named Jim Elliott. is brought to mind. Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were slaughtered on a beach in Ecuador. January 8th of 1959. Matter of fact, you have, you have the two images up there. Just, if, can you put them both up at the same time? All right, that's fine. Just go ahead, go ahead and start with the, four, the images of the, of the men, the five missionaries. <clears throat> Those are the, the five missionaries right there. And they had began making... They, they began reaching out to the, the tribe of the Wadoni and uh, Wadani, I think that's it.
Question that was greatly on his on Jim Elliot's heart to reach into that tribe. They were unreached. They were known for their brutality. Um, they were isolated. They wanted nothing to do with the outside world. They were known as killers. And so he began making contact, and at first it was very, very successful. Uh, very promising. He had landed on this. This was not the first time he landed on that beach and had and talked with them. He would landed uh, uh, two other times, if I remember right, prior to this. Even took one of them for a flight in the plane. He was on the third time, third or fourth time when they landed. You can go to the image of the plane now. This is the plane on the beach. They had landed, and they were not there to greet them. It was a scheduled arrival time, so they had waited, and then out of the bush came two ladies. And so they're all excited. They all, they all get up, and they head towards her. And it, and, 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 but then right behind them, here comes men running with spears. Now, I don't know if you know this, but they were armed. They had at least one gun with them. But according to, uh, was it Elizabeth Elliot, they'd already made a pact. They know we can't kill them. They're not ready for eternity. So they made the choice not to defend themselves. And within minutes, they were all speared to death right there on that beach. You can go, you can put the lights back up. Jim Elliott, he was the most popular of that group, I think because of his writings. Let me give you some of his statements he made. His most popular one was one of my, it's one of my favorite quotes of anybody who's ever spoken. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. But here's some more from his journal. 1948, he wrote this. The first couple, first, actually first several here from 1948. One treasure, a single eye, and a soul master. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Another one from 1948. Saturate me with the oil of thy spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, short-lived? A short life. In me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived whose zeal for God's house consumed him. Make me thy fuel, thy flame, O God. He said this, also in his journal, As your life is in his hands, so are the days of your life. But don't let the sands of time get into the eye of your vision to reach those who sit in darkness. They simply must hear. 1950. I must not think it strange if God takes in youth those whom I would have kept on earth till they were older. God is people in eternity, and I must not restrict him to old men or women. This one is short, last one I'll give, 1952. The will of God is always bigger than anything than we bargained for. It's true. They were slaughtered on the beach, but that isn't the end of the story. It had the opposite effect of what the Indians were hoping for. The direct opposite. Those deaths would lead to the gospel coming into that tribe and many would be converted. It was not the end of the story. In less than two years, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, and her daughter, and Rachel Saint, Nate's sister, were able to move into that village. Many of them became Christians and converted 
It's now still to this day a friendly tribe with churches. Two years is all it took after that event. So many times persecution comes, but it has the opposite effect that is intended. People think this is going to end it. We'll have no more of this. And it was interesting that Jim Elliott, there's two views when they talk with him, because some of them I think are probably still alive today that that took part in those events on the beach. And And I knew there was two different viewpoints as to why they decided to kill him. It was a debate since they made contact. Because they usually killed all outsiders, whether it was oil workers, whoever it was, they just took them out. But they didn't, these men. But it was debated. And, and, and one, of, one of the theories that is given as to what, what had happened, the, the, the time before this, they had showed a picture of someone that came out from there that was helping them. It was, it was a young woman. They, showed him their, they had showed the men on the beach her picture. And they did say that scared them. They didn't understand what a picture was. And then he put the picture, they said, back in his pocket. They thought that was her soul. And he had her. And it scared him. And then that led to the, led to the conclusion, we, got to, we have to kill him. But again, within two years, conversions would start taking place right there in that village. When this persecution hits in Acts chapter 8, as of yet, the church had really not been reaching out at all. For the most part, they were, they were missing missions, but that's about to change. Persecution launched the growth of Christianity into the world. And notice, they were all preachers. All of them went about preaching. It wasn't just some, it wasn't just the apostles, it wasn't just, just you know, certain of them, it was all of them. And you can think about that even as, even as it begins growing and others get converted. You can think of the effect that somebody like Lydia had with her business going around telling others about Christ. Or how about the, how about the centurion that's going to get saved? That Peter's going to lead the Lord. A man of influence in the Roman army, uh, in the Roman army of who he's going to have an effect on. They were all preachers. This dispersion, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 11, went, went to, really traveled pretty far. It, it went to... Uh, uh, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. It tells us when it's describing what happens here in Acts chapter 11. That's how far they went to. You, two of those are to the islands. It had, you know, the, the one fairly close off the, uh, where they're at. They're off Turkey and even get in Israel off the Mediterranean there. The other one much further closer to Italy. And then Antioch, as you know, going into modern day Turkey. I mean, they, they were really scattering. So in the gospel, and everywhere they went, <laughs> they're all Talking about Christ. But then it gives us one particular example of another man we're going to meet here in this chapter, and that is a man named Philip. Philip was one of the seven deacons chosen, just like Stephen. You think, in chapter 6, they picked some really, really good men. As it described, they looked for men who were full of, full of God's spirit, full of wisdom. Philip is one of these men. He's referred to in the Bible really as the very first missionary is Philip. He's given the title evangelist in Acts 21.8. An evangelist in that day would be a missionary. Not, that's not how we term it today. So when he, he knows he has to pick up and leave, he's going to head out. He heads 40 miles north of Jerusalem to Samaria. Now, the background of this sets the setting of why this is important. 
going back, as many of you already know, but in 722 B.C., the Assyrians, in the Word of God, they, kept, they, they, they went into the northern kingdom of Israel. The nation was divided. The Assyrians, uh, as a result of God's judgment on their rebellion, he allows the Assyrians to come in and they conquer the northern kingdom, um, devastating the capital of Samaria. They removed the bulk of the population, bringing them to Assyria, but they left some there. And then what they did was they brought in different Gentiles and pagans and other places they had invaded from to populate that city. And they mixed with the Jews that were there, and now you have this mix of Gentile and Jew. They became known as the Samaritans. Now, the, the, the full-blooded Jews would have no dealings with them. They had begun their own mix of paganism and Judaism in Samaria. They even built their own temple. Now, that temple was destroyed before the time of Christ. That, that temple was destroyed probably going close to 100 years before Christ was here. But they had built their own temple. At one point, the city was leveled. Herod actually rebuilt the city in honor of Caesar. But, but the population was filled with those who were half Gentile, half Jews, these Samaritans, and those in Israel, they, they hated, they'd have no dealings with them, the Bible said. Matter of fact, if, if you understand the geography of it, you have Judea down here, you have Samaria, and then you have Galilee up here. When they would travel to Galilee or Galilee down to Judea, they would not go through Samaria. They'd, go all the way, they'd head through Decapolis and come all the way around. There were no dealings with them. There was, there was a hatred there. And so this is the place that Philip decides to go. And, and the wording here seems to imply that he went there. He had to leave. He knew that. People are packing up and getting out. I mean, this is a serious persecution taking place. They're getting out. But it looks like Philip, and I'm sure others as well, determined, okay, where can I go and preach? I wonder if two events didn't, didn't affect his mind that he heard about. One, when Jesus Christ himself went there and talked with the woman at the well. Knowing that Christ had already been there, and him thinking, I can use that. Or perhaps the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, 8 when he told them to go into Samaria. And so he heads to Samaria, and he's going to preach. He gets there, and the Bible says that he preaches Christ. Again, you can just see him maybe, maybe stirring their minds to the event that had taken place with the Lord Jesus Christ all those, uh, just a short time earlier, really, just a couple of years prior, of when the Messiah was there. And he says, listen, there's more to this story. Let me tell you about his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And they listened. To authenticate his message, just like the apostles in the Bible teaches just that. It was to authenticate the message. There is no New Testament at the time. It's not there. There's not a book written yet. So to authenticate the message, just like the apostles, he had the gifts of miracles, of healings. He begins to cast out demons and heal the sick. And the miracles are taking place and it authenticates the message that this guy's of God. We know it. And it's leading to conversions right there. And as a result, the last point here, there's rejoicing. It says in verse number 8, And there was great joy in that city. This isn't going to be true only of only of Samaria, but throughout. Throughout all those who come in here. I mean, how could there not be? Look, I think the key to this is, go over to the book of Psalms, chapter 144. Psalm 144. Verse 
verse 15. Happy is that people that in such a case, yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. How can that not produce a measure of joy, a measure of happiness, when all of a sudden, I, I mean, I, I, think back to, I think back to when I got converted, June 30, 1982. I, I remember so much about that day. I mean, on the pew, not even going through the invitation, been wanting to go up for weeks, knowing that I need whatever he's talking about. And then finally, at the service, and then going up there and talking with him, and, and, and the lights clicking on, I understood why Christ died, repenting and placing my faith in Christ. But I remember so much more about that day. I remember as, as I was walking down, and, and he was with me, there was still a deacon in the church. Everybody was gone. And he said, we're, we're, we're going to, I think if I remember his name was Philip. We're going to go let Philip know what you just did. And I, I just remember thinking, I mean, there was, there was an incredible joy. I mean, I, I had an, a small idea, not even, really not even to the great extent, but I had a small idea of understanding of what just happened. I did know I'm no longer going to hell. I knew that. I understood. I mean, I'd heard growing up Christ died for me. I didn't understand that. I don't understand what it meant. I mean, I thought I'd be all right if I just simply went to church. I'd been baptized. I lived a pretty good life. I thought I would be fine. Little did I know, none of that is true. And then when Pastor John Norris sat me down and actually for the first time, somebody opened the Bible to show me what the Bible says about salvation. I understood that if God judged me, as the Bible says he would in Hebrews 9.27, I would go to hell. I'm guilty. And it clicked. That's why Christ was here. You see, understand this. When Christ went to the cross, he was literally taking your place in judgment. He was literally dying for you. God the Father placed upon him all of our sin. He judged him in your place. The wages of sin is death, and he is taking your place. At the same time, that was enabling him to give you his perfect righteousness. Death did not hold Christ. If you die and go to hell, you're not coming out. Jesus is God. After three days and three nights, he arose again from the dead defeating the wages of sin. You'll never do that. He did because he's God. Jesus literally took your place. He died for you. If you'll come to him in repentance and faith, he will save you. It's what life is all about. With heads bowed.